Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. So if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Uh, We're going to be in verses 1 to 19 and working through one of the most famous conversion stories in the Bible and one of the most important men in the Bible. I would say this man is the second most important man, um, definitely in the New Testament, apart from Jesus. And this is the man Saul, who we know today as the Apostle Paul. Um, So what we're going to do right now is just read through verses 1 to 19, and then we'll jump in. This is what it says, chapter 9 of Acts, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that, if he, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice to him, saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. Now the house of Judas looked for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord who has appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Whenever, uh, whenever I was in college, um, freshman and sophomore year, I believe, um, I worked during the summers for my grandfather. My grandfather um, had a company that they built oil tanks, these big, massive, um, you know, 40 feet high type oil tanks. And um, my job, I was kind of like a gopher boy. I, didn't ha- I couldn't weld, you know, I didn't have any type of skills or whatever. Um, and so I was just trying to keep my head above water. And I remember one of my first days there, I met with, a, or I, I met a guy, his name, I believe his name was Jose. He was Mexican guy from Mexico. And the first thing, whenever he shook my hand, he said, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I didn't even know the guy's name. He said, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I was like, yeah, man, we're good. And and I just thought that was so interesting, you know. Um, so I was okay. I just tugged that at the back of my head. And then uh, later on through the summer, I worked with this guy named George. We were in the ladder shop. We built like metal staircases type of deal. And uh, and we were talking about Jose. And George was like, 
Um, yeah, Jose uh, knows Jesus. He follows Jesus. Jose goes to church now. And I was like, oh, yeah, um, did he not before? And George was like, well, no, he was a drug dealer before. Um, he was totally different. He had all these chains, and he was all kind of thugged out, and now he's a totally different man. And I was like, huh, I would have never guessed. You know, this guy who shook his hand, the first thing he asked if I knew Jesus had such a life before. Um, Jose had an encounter with Jesus that changed his life. And many of us, I'm sure, maybe have similar stories, maybe not like Jose from a life of dealing drugs to a a life of following Jesus. But the truth is, whenever anyone encounters Jesus, they have a changed life. Life Life-changing grace. Today in the book of Acts here, we see a man, Saul, who had a life-changing encounter with Jesus, who experienced the life-changing grace of Jesus. One of the most incredible um, conversions in the history of the church and one of the most important as we understand the history of Christianity. Whenever people encounter Jesus, they have a changed life. And so today, I want to look through this conversion story and pull out a few important principles that can teach us what it means, one, to encounter the grace of Jesus, and two, what it means for us going forward after encountering the grace of Jesus, okay? But before we do that, I just want to take a look at this guy, Saul, um, who will be the Apostle Paul. And I'll just ask you to forgive me um, on the front end. I'm probably going to use the word Paul and Saul kind of interchangeably, but I'm talking about the same guy. Saul and Paul is the same guy. So who, who is this guy, Saul, who um, was murdering and killing the church? What is up with him? What's going on? Well, Acts 22, 1 to 5 gives us a little bit, actually we'll be in verses 3 to 5, gives us a little bit of Saul's backstory. This is later on the book of Acts. This is um, Saul kind of telling, kind of speaking his peace and telling people about himself. This is his background. Um, Saul says this, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Being zealous for God, as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there, and to bring them in bonds to Jerusalem, and to be punished. This man Saul was a religious extremist. Um, think ISIS, and you wouldn't be far off. Um, he did kill people for their, what he thought was apostasy. Um, Jews that were following this Jesus cult, and it was his job to exterminate these people, to take them um, to prison and to have them executed. If you remember Saul, he stood over and, and presided over the murder of Stephen. You remember from earlier, Stephen, the first Christian martyr in Acts chapter 7, Saul was there. He saw it all. They said that, they, that he was standing there watching them, observing them, stoning Stephen to death. He was um, a terrorist, I would say, and that's how we would understand him today. If we were watching on Fox News or whatever, that's what it would say, you know, Jewish extremists killing all the Christians. That was this man, Saul. He was murdering religious apostates, people that had turned their back on 
the law of Moses as he saw it. And if I were coming across Saul, he's not the type of guy I would enter into friendly debate with, right? <laughs> I probably would turn around and run away. But something happens to this man. On the road to Damascus to kill and murder more Christians, something happens to him. He has an encounter with Jesus and his life totally changes. And the first thing we learn from Saul's conversion is this. When we encounter Jesus, we encounter life-changing grace. When we encounter Jesus, we encounter life-changing grace. Verses 3 and 6. I think I have it up there. Yeah. This is what happens. Now as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone all around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what to do. So Jesus appears in a flash of light. It reminds me, if you remember um, in the Gospels, whenever Jesus is transfigured on top of the mountain, and it says his clothes were intensely, radiantly white. And now whenever he appears to Saul here, he's, he's bright, white light shining. And, and he, Saul hears this speaking out of the light. The other people don't know what's going on. They don't hear anything. But Saul hears, why are you persecuting me? Those are the first words that Jesus says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it's so interesting that Jesus so identifies with his church that the persecution of the church is a persecution of Jesus himself. Why are you persecuting me, Saul? And yet the amazing grace of Jesus is that even though he's persecuting the body of believers, it is to this body that Jesus is calling Saul. Even though he's killing these people, Jesus enters into him right where he's sinning, right in the middle of murdering people. God, Jesus enters himself in the situation and calls him from darkness into the light that he is shown. Whenever we encounter Jesus, we encounter life-changing grace, God inserting himself in the middle of our mess. So there are three specific things that I think we learn from Saul's conversion that we would do well to look at. Three things, truths about God's grace that we learn from Saul's conversion here. The first thing we learn, salvation is purely by God's grace, not a result of works. We all know that. We learned that a long time ago, but we so easily forget it. Salvation is purely by God's grace, not a result of works. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 was written, now we're going to read it here in a little bit, by this man who experienced this story here. If anyone could write this sentence, it was this man, Paul, who experienced the grace of God. Um, Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not your own doing, is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I was on an a airplane um, going down to Mississippi, going back home. And I've told this story before. If you've heard it before, then just nod if you could. Um, and I was sitting next to this lady named Lisa, and I was reading the book of Job. And uh, she looked over and she said, what's Job? What's Job? I was like, no, it's Job. And, uh, and so I got to talking to her. 
And, you know, she said she was Christian, Catholic. She, you know, read the Bible or tried to go to church, whatever. And I started talking to her about, you know, if she was to go to, if she, whenever she died and if she was going to enter into heaven, if God asked her, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And she said, well, you know, my priest always said, as long as you're a good person you'll, and you try to do good and be good, you'll be all set. And I showed her this text, and I was like, well, the Bible says just the opposite. The Bible says that we cannot be good enough. Indeed, if we try to be good enough, we're just going to fail. And if we, we give our lives to being good enough, we're really running and barking up the wrong tree because that's the wrong place to go. I can think of no clearer statement of this than this section here. This is not your own doing. It's a gift from God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The important thing we learn about grace is that grace is given. God's grace is given. God's grace can only be received. God's grace cannot be earned. It's impossible to earn grace right? It's a, it's a contradiction of terms. If you earn grace, then you destroy grace because it's something that you can boast in. It's something you deserve. It's something you merit. But that's not how it works. God's grace gives us nothing to boast in. We don't have anything to boast in. The only boasting we have in receiving God's grace is boasting in God himself. God's grace is is tough. I mean, it's beautiful, but I would say it's tough too, because it disarms us. It strips us. It gives us nothing of ourselves to, again, boast in. It strips us of our accomplishments. It humbles us. And I was, as I was talking to this woman, Lisa, about this and explaining grace and how we can only receive grace, she just couldn't do the math. She couldn't add those together. In our society, we, in just the natural way of thinking, it's what do I got to do to make this happen? What do I got to do to make this work? What do I need to do to make, you know, two and two equal four here? But with Jesus, there's nothing we can do. And that's the first thing we have to come to figure out because it's all of grace, everything. It's given to us. It's provided to us. We got Thanksgiving coming up, and we're going to um, be bringing a lot of food, right, whenever we show up. I don't, we're going down to Maryland. I'm not sure if we're bringing anything. We're going to be freeloaders this Thanksgiving. It's okay, though. But we're going to be bringing a lot of stuff to the table, okay? Grace is understanding that God has already set the table up for us. Grace is understanding that God has already brought the feast and that we can't bring anything to add to it. In fact, there's no room for us to put anything on the table. It's all taken up, and anything we bring isn't going to taste good anyways. That's what grace is. God has provided the meal. He just tells us to sit down and eat. That is grace. This is why the proud cannot receive grace. Because the proud want something to boast in. The proud need something to boast in. But grace humbles us. What does it say? God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. Think about Saul. Saul had done everything right according to his beliefs. Everything right. If there was anyone who could boast in his qualifications, it was this man Saul. 
He could check off every single box that would get him into heaven. This is what he says about himself. Philippians 3, 4 to 6. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, so that's just another way, if anyone else thinks that they can boast, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, so he has all the sort of credentials just as, as far as his upbringing and his people and his blood, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He knew God's law, and he believed it enough that he would beat up anyone that did not follow it. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Saul had it all figured out. He was righteous in his own eyes according to the law. You couldn't, you couldn't say anything about this man. He checked off all the boxes. But in God's amazing grace to Saul on the Damascus road, in this blinding flashing of light, Saul sees himself for who he truly is. He's stripped of all of his qualifications, stripped of all of his boasting as he encounters the grace of Jesus. And now he seeks, going on, to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. He was raised and, and grown brought up as someone who sought righteousness through the law, sought to be right with God through what he had done, but now he understands that he has a righteousness that doesn't come from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That is a worldview-changing encounter, a life-changing encounter with God's grace. We today live in an age of boasting, I think. Uh, we are a boastful age. Um, and for those that have a lot of worldly success, it's a great time to be alive. Everyone can know with the click of a button how awesome you are on all these different platforms, right? Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the other stuff. And if you're on top of the world, then everyone's going to know about it. It's a great time to be alive. But for those with nothing to boast in, it can be just the opposite. Or even for those with something to boast in, it can be just the opposite. I, uh, I don't think it's any um, coincidence that as social media and the use of social media has risen throughout the past couple of decades, that the teen suicide rate has also risen. 47% since the year 2000, 2000 2017. 47% more um, teen suicides, the second leading cause of death amongst our teenagers. What does that tell us? It tells us that feeling like you don't measure up can be devastating. Feeling like you don't measure up in a world that boasts of all, its, of all of its accomplishments can be devastating. But the beauty of Jesus's grace is a call to those on top of the world and a call to those on bottom of the world to not place their hopes in the things of the world. The beauty of Jesus's grace is to call to everyone that you don't measure up, but it's okay. Because Jesus measures up. The beauty of God's grace is to call us to place our faith in the only one who measures up. Because everything else is a lie. Saul's righteousness was a lie. He wasn't righteous. My righteousness is a lie. My boasting is a lie. The only one who can boast is Jesus. And he was the one who died. And he was the one that rape was risen. And he is the one that measures up. And he is the one that came 
to sacrifice himself for us, to reunite us with God. Life-changing grace is a gift. It's not earned. We can't boast in it. And thank God we can't because we honestly have nothing to boast in. That's what Saul realized on the Damascus road. And that's what I pray we would realize as we follow Jesus. Okay? That's the first thing. The second thing is this. No one is beyond God's reach. No one is beyond God's reach. Saul is a perfect example of that. I mean, I don't know if you've, you probably have not murdered anyone, right? You probably have not gone into churches and pulled people out of prison, you know, out of churches and thrown them into prison. And if you did, then maybe you might think, okay, maybe I'm too far from God. But that's not the case. This man Saul was, as I said, a religious extremist, an ISIS murderer type guy. But God still saved him. I think that's really challenging. And I, I wonder, just to make kind of bring that point home, whenever we see this, and I'm just focusing on ISIS because it's kind of fresh, what do we think whenever we see that? What do we think whenever we see these religious extremists and terrorists? Do we call upon the grace of Jesus to save these people? That Saul was in the middle of going to Damascus to do the things that these guys are doing. Or... Or do we just call upon God and say, God, just take him out? Like, what is our response? Whenever God saw a man going to kill his people, he saved him. He entered into a situation and saved him and called him from darkness into light. These people are not so far from God that they cannot be saved. In fact, to think that these people are so far from God that they cannot be saved is to put limits on God. It's to say that God's grace is not enough. It's to say that his mercy is not enough. It's to say that people can be too bad for even God to redeem, which is not possible. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to wash away all of the sins of the world. Every single one. I don't care what sins they are. To take it to the extreme, I believe if Hitler had repented of his sins truthfully, before he took his own life, he probably wouldn't take his own life, he would have been saved. Do we believe in a blood of Jesus that can do that? That's a, that's a challenging thought. But if no one is so far away from God that they cannot be saved, that's the conclusion. Now, would Hitler have repented? Probably not. Is he in heaven? Probably not. But no one is beyond God's reach. It's a testament to the blood of Jesus. That's what it is. It's a testament to God's mercy and grace. This is what Isaiah 59, 1 says. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot save. God's hands are not tied by our sin. The fact that God can save the worst of humanity magnifies this grace of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 9-10. This is Saul Again, going back to his past. This is what he says. He says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul 
thinking back on himself, did not count himself worthy because of the things that he had done. But it didn't matter because God's grace was enough. It was not in vain. God's grace towards this man was not in vain, but accomplished the purpose that he had for it. God in Saul turned an enemy of the church into a missionary of the church, a persecutor of the church into a preacher of of the church, a destroyer of the church into a church planner. So the grace of God is magnified in the salvation of sinners, and the greater the sinner, the greater the grace. The farther we are from God, the farther God reaches for us. That is very good news. That is very good news. I, uh, I think about what this means for me then. I don't know if you have people in your life maybe have hurt you, or you maybe have written off, or that you think maybe are too far from God, or they're a lost cause, or they're hopeless, or whatever. The story of Saul speaks otherwise. The story of Saul stops that thought right in its tracks and says, no, that's not true. God's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. And for us, what that means is that we, in our flesh, might want to give up on people, but we can't because God doesn't. The farther people are from God, the farther he reaches. No one is beyond God's reach. That's what Saul tells us here. And the final thing is this that we see about God's amazing grace is that God is patient with us. God is very patient with us. Um, my wife is amazing. You guys know my wife. She's awesome. Beautiful, best wife in the world. Really great. All right. Um, anyways, if so it's been really busy um, the past month for me with all the insurance stuff, and I'll try to call home once or twice during the day just to kind of check in. And I can always tell the type of day it's been by the tone of my wife's voice on the, on the phone, especially if I call around dinner time. And she's just kind of like short and just kind of like, <sighs> kind of breathing, you know. And I can tell that her fuse is getting kind of low. And typically, I love my wife, typically it explodes right around bedtime where she'll just be like, all right, we're not doing Bible story, get in bed, pray real quick, turn off the lights, see you later, Okay. I love my wife. I'll just say it again. She's going to hear this, and she's going to be mad. Um, and, but it's true for all of us, right? Especially with kids, you know. Your patience runs thin, very thin. And then I think about, I wonder what would happen if God, if, if God was as patient with me as I am with my own kids. I wonder if God's fuse is as short as the fuse that I have for my own kids, And the answer is, it's not. He has abundant patience for us, abundant patience for me. God is patient with us. He's not like my wife. Um, And may I be like him in the same patience, right? And that's just a little, you know, thing to kind of take for, for us parents. But in the grander scheme of things, with the evil in the world and the lostness and the wickedness in the world, God is patient with that, God is patient with this world that has turned from him. God is patient with the lost. Ezekiel 33, 11 says this. Uh, go back, yeah. Say to them, this is God saying, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. 
Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God's posture towards lostness and evil in this world and wickedness is not glee whenever he pours out judgment. He doesn't take pleasure in wrath and showing his wrath. He's not up there just waiting for us to mess up so he can zap us with lightning bolts. That's not how it works. He is patient. He gives people opportunity time and time again to turn and believe. This is what it says, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Though completely able and justified in bringing judgment, God patiently endures evil for the sake of the wicked themselves, that they would turn and believe. That's what we see with Saul. God endured all the things this man had done throughout all of his life for this moment in time that he would turn on the road to Damascus and believe. And as I think about the Bible and what the Bible asks of us, from Genesis to Revelation, if the Bible gave us any command, what would it be? What I think it is is this. God has called us to repent and believe. More than anything else, if we had to sum up everything the Bible teaches of us, it's to repent and believe. And we see that time and time again throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, God calling his people to turn from their sins and believe and follow my word, to keep my covenant, to follow my promises, to offer my sacrifices. And here in the New Testament, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And time and time again, we don't do that. We don't repent. We don't believe. Even as followers of Jesus, we know we're not perfect. And time and time again, he gives grace. He is patient with us. Oh, the patience of God that he would endure this man, Saul, to save him and send him out for his own purpose. Oh, the patience of God that he would be patient with me, right? And knew that time and time again, he offers us forgiveness and we turn from it, but he offers it still and he always will because it's all been paid through Jesus. The grace of God, the patience of God. Now, reflecting on what we see here through Saul, how does that impact us? How should such an understanding of God's grace impact how you deal with others? The people that are lost causes, right? The people that you think are too far gone. The people that really get on your nerves. How should God's grace extending to the worst of us impact how you think about the worst of humanity? How does God's grace impact how we deal with those in the world? The grace of God in Saul is life-changing, far-reaching, patiently enduring, and beautiful. And it's a grace that he wants all of us to show and live out every single day. And it's a high calling, but it's one that, that we can answer because we have received the same grace that God is calling us to give to the world. And so in Saul, we see God's grace. He comes to him, blinding light. He's you know shining out, can't see anything. And then 
the next half in verse 10, um, we're moving to our next point. So, so God calls this man Ananias. And this guy Ananias, after Saul has kind of had this experience, he lives in Damascus. And Ananias, uh, whenever he's confronted with Jesus to go to this man Saul, he's a little weary, and understandably so. This is what Ananias says in verses 15 and 16. It says this, because Jesus says, Go see Paul, Saul, who's blind. And I says this, but look, uh, sorry, I'm all confused. This is what Jesus says. Go to Saul, actually go back, there it is. Uh, Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here has authority from the chief priest to bind up all who call on your name. Can you imagine if God, think of an ISIS terrorist, if there was like a guy down the road who you thought wanted to blow you up, and God was like, all right, I want you to go to this guy and help him. Would you go? <laughs> right? Would you like, okay, let's do this, right? That's the position Ananias is in. He's like, I don't know. Like, this is a big ask, God. I'm not really sure about this. And then this is how Jesus responds. And it, it leads us to our second point. The first point was that whenever we encounter Jesus, we encounter life-changing grace. The second point is this. Life-changing grace leads to life on mission. And we see this from this next part, verses 15 and 16. The Lord said to him, Go, Ananias, for Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Jesus did not appear to Saul and give this grace to Saul just for that to be it. But Saul was saved for a reason. The life-changing grace that Saul received was the start, not the end. It was the beginning of a very long road that was really tough for Saul. Life-changing grace leads to life on mission. We don't receive Jesus for nothing. That's what I'm getting at. We don't receive Jesus from nothing. And I want to look at three little sections of this verse 15 and pull them out, see if we can learn something from it. The first thing is this. Jesus calls Saul his chosen instrument. Chosen instrument. Another word for instrument is vessel. So Christ is, uh, sorry, Saul is Christ's chosen vessel to preach the gospel. And whenever we hear this word vessel, it reminds me of the sort of the, the symbolism of, of God being the potter and us being the clay, right? And Jesus being the potter and us being the clay. And the idea is that God, just like a potter shapes the clay, God shapes us our experiences, our talents, everything God gives us for a purpose, a chosen instrument, a chosen vessel. And whenever I think about this, I think about this man Saul um, in this verse, 22, 3 right here, and his experiences, okay? Saul was educated. Saul was smart. He was, you know, spoke different languages. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the scriptures. He was well-versed in them. He was a zealous man. He was a fiery man. He had a lot of good things about him that God put in him that was bent on doing evil, okay, in his destruction of the church. But it's interesting that God uses this man that knows so much 
of the Old Testament scriptures saves him. And then he winds up writing the New Testament that explains the gospel, that systematically explains who Jesus is and why Jesus is important. All these letters that he's written to the churches, God used Saul's past for the future and for the the goal and the mission that he had given him. Systematically, I don't know if you've read the book of Romans, the book of Galatians. God explains, I'm sorry, Saul explains the gospel in a way that ties Jesus as the center of it all, God's chosen vessel. And I think about that for us. God has chosen all of us. We are all his chosen vessels. And God has uniquely shaped us, just like he shaped Paul, for a purpose, for a reason, for a task. He has given us experiences, abilities, giftings to use them, to use them. The the salvation we have in Jesus is not the end. It's just the beginning. A chosen instrument for God's use. So a life on mission is a life that understands I've been given what I've been given for a reason. And the reason is greater than myself. I've been given what I'm given. I've been shaped the way I've been shaped for a reason. And the reason is greater than whatever I think I got going on. Okay? Saul is... um, Jesus' chosen instrument. The second thing is this, and I, you can go backwards. The second thing is, he's my chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. So what does a vessel do? A vessel was created to hold something. A vessel was created to hold something. Very, vessels carry something. And what Saul is carrying is the name of Jesus. Um, we're kind of on this Thanksgiving train, and I'm just going to jump onto it. The way I think about this is like a gravy boat, okay? Stay with me, okay? No one is really jazzed about the gravy boat. We want the gravy in the boat, right? That's what we want. If you came to Thanksgiving and someone had a ton of gravy boats with no gravy, you're like, what the heck? Where's the gravy? We want the gravy, right? And that's the same thing with us. A lot of us are are just, we can be so, churches, people, we can be so concerned about the vessel and not what the vessel is supposed to hold. We are here to hold Jesus. We are here to deliver Jesus to others. If I went to Thanksgiving and there was no gravy, I would be mad. I don't care how many gravy boats you have. I'm not complimenting you on your gravy boat. I'm complimenting you on the gravy. We are vessels of God's grace. We are filled with God's grace. That's what's important. A chosen instrument to carry my name. That's what Saul was. A chosen instrument to carry my name. That's what's important. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Move forward, there it is. This is what it says. We have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay. Jar of clay, It's the gospel, that's the treasure. The name of Jesus, that's the treasure. A life on mission understands that I am here to carry the name of Christ. To show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Is this how we view our lives? Or are we more concerned about the vessel rather than what fills the vessel? Is the overriding mission of our life to be vessels of God's grace? Or is it just to be about the vessel? It's easy for us to just be about the vessel. 
and not why the vessel was made in the first place, which is to spread the name of Jesus. I get excited about gravy, not the gravy boat. And that's my word to you. Let's get excited about the grace. Let's get excited about the gospel and and where we're taking the gospel. That's what life-changing grace does. It leads to life-changing mission, life on mission. And then the final thing is this. Jesus says that he is set apart, Saul, chosen instrument. He says, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I'm going to let Paul speak for himself here. You can go to the next slide there. This is what Paul experienced in suffering for the name of Jesus. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. If anyone suffered for the name of Jesus, it was this man, Saul. But just a few pages earlier, despite of these things, this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. It says, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction... Everything he said in 2 Corinthians 11, he now calls this light momentary affliction. Everything he says here, he now says, you can go to the next one, a light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul looked to the things unseen. He looked beyond what was in front of his eyes, and he looked to Jesus. I just love that Hebrews 12 verse that we had at the beginning, that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Paul saw the accomplishment of the mission. He saw this eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison because he experienced the life-changing grace of Jesus. And I just wonder how numb we get to this grace that we don't want to be on mission for it. And I say that to myself. How numb do I get towards the grace of God that I don't want to be on mission for Jesus? But life-changing grace leads to life on mission. That is what the conversion of Saul shows us. No one is too far away. God is patient. God gives everything we need, but we're not saved for nothing. We're saved for a changed life. We're chosen, shaped vessels to be filled and sent for Jesus for the sake of this world. Saul is a beautiful testament of God's grace and a beautiful testament of God's call. And it's the same grace and the same call that he has given to us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just want to thank you for um, this morning to preach your word, to just meditate on this amazing man and this amazing experience, Lord. 
unique for sure. I don't know if anyone has experienced this type of conversion, Lord. But the principles still apply. The, the truths still apply to all of us, Lord. That your grace is amazing, but it's not for nothing. It's for a changed life. It's as a vessel to be sent out. And so I just want to pray that you would remind us of that, Lord. I would pray that you would encourage us, challenge us, help us. Lord, show us the way, help us along. You are great, Lord, in your grace, and we love you. I thank you for this morning, and thank you for just all these people here. In the name of Jesus, I pray.